0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 10 of our discussion of Morgoth's Ring. And tonight... Well, we're gonna see. <laughs> I'm gonna try to finish uh, the laws and customs of the Eldar, uh, but this is such a delightful section of this book, um, and uh, I hope that uh, uh, you guys agree with me on that. I don't know if you like it or not, um, but I certainly find it very delightful uh, and just so much fun to see Tolkien doing this. Uh, I loved, you know, those moments in the history of the Lord of the Rings, when these, like, world-building moments, right? Like, uh, when, you know, Hobbit culture begins to emerge. Like, remember that wonderful, you know, when uh, uh, the characters who will later become Frodo and Sam and Pippin are walking across the Marish, and they're, you know, talking about throwing dirty dishes out the window and stuff like that. Like, the whole context in which, like, all of the the stuff about, uh, you know, Hobbit architecture... Uh, and everything, uh, you know, begins to emerge. Uh, that's, you know, it was, it was always so much fun to see when world building happened to Tolkien, you know, and it, because it seemed to strike rather un- unpredictably. Right. Um, uh, but it was always it was it was just it was always so much fun to see when it happened. And so seeing it happening again now um you know, long after the War of the Rings is done, but to be to be, you know, to see it happening in regard to these legends, you know, that we've already read so many different versions of, and and which are, you know, have been familiar to us even for years, as they not quite so many years as they had been familiar to Tolkien already, but almost feels like that actually some days, uh, you know, since we started our history of uh, of uh, Middle Earth series discussions, but anyway. Um, it's uh, delightful to see. So anyway, I'm having fun. So I hope you guys will uh, uh, have fun uh, in continuing to talk about this section tonight. Um, we're going to we're going to see. We're going to see if uh, we get through laws and customs tonight. Um Quick reminder before we jump in, just wanted to remind you that our new our courses for our new Signum Path program are starting next week uh, in the beginning of June uh, is our first ever set of Signum Path classes. We do have registration open for July and August as well. But I wanted to remind folks about that uh, Signum Path program. Wonderful new opportunity uh, from Signum, new professional development opportunity, uh, gaining those humanities-based skills to help in folks' folks' careers. Uh, I think this is going to be a really, really fruitful program for a lot of people. I'm delighted uh, that we're able to offer it uh, and I'm really excited about it moving forward. So I just wanted to remind everybody about that. It's not too late to sign up for classes, even for this June. Um, but, of course, as I say, we also are open for July and august, so um i uh um yeah, yeah, oh, that's interesting. James Leback points out that uh at this point in Tolkien's life, the Silmarillion was older to Tolkien than uh the Silmarillion. Is to anyone who read it when it came out in 1977. Like we've still not been around the Silmarillion for as long as Tolkien had been uh, at this time. It's true. It's true. Um, It's uh, fairly remarkable. Um, We still we still have a few years to go to catch up to. uh, uh, But again, it's I mean it really does put it into context, though, doesn't it, James? I mean, think about how long ago 1977 was uh, when the Silmarillion came out. I know there are some people, uh, you know, possibly some people tonight who can, re- you know, who remember that, you know, for whom, uh, you know, who, who might've read the Silmarillion right after it was released. Um, I remember listening, for instance, to Doug Anderson's story about how he cut class on the day after the Silmarillion came out, you know, one of the few days in which he played hooky from school. Uh, and, uh, you know, to read the Silmarillion the day after it came out. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, so that's uh, that's it is really it, it, to me this I mean, I, I, I brought that up, you know, about how long he'd been living with this stuff just because it is it is to me a, a very remarkable development, not just that he's revising. Right. Not he's not just preparing for publication. He's not even just revising. He's reinventing. Right. He's recontextualizing. He is revisiting these stories, thinking through these stories in completely new ways. Now, of course, to some extent, that's what I've been saying the whole time. We've been talking about Morgoth's Ring. Right. But I feel that we can sort of see and hear and feel that more. Right. More pointedly, or at least in a different way. Um, here during the laws and customs of the Eldar section than we could. We kind of see it peeking around the corners at various places earlier on. Um, but um this is uh, uh this is different, I would say. Uh certainly feels different to me. Um, yeah. Ah cool. Yeah, there are several people here who remember the Silmarillion coming out. Mary does and Arthur does. Um Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Good. Um, Exactly, Brian. That's a really good way of sort of summarizing it, that um, we can see Tolkien trying to turn them from myths that he was writing in the Lost Tales phase to stories that make sense within the world that he has created. Absolutely. Absolutely. But of course, uh, Brian, and I think we can see Tolkien sort of exerting himself in this way, right? His goal is not to make them less mythic. Uh, it's not to deprive them of... And, but, and that's the real... Um, the real delicacy, the real... Uh, uh, delicacy, not quite the right word. Delicateness, I suppose, is the word I mean. Um, a, del- a delicacy is something quite different. Anyway, uh... This is the the delicate work that he's doing in retconning here uh, to accomplish, Brian, exactly what you're describing, making these things into stories that make sense within the world that he's created, um, but yet also remaining mythic, retaining the mythic power that they always had uh, that that drew him to them in the first place, right? Um, And as we've seen already a couple times if push comes to shove right if he has to choose between um if he has to choose between his his um the myth and the story he um uh, um he chooses the myth right um, you know, and, and, and some of the inconsistencies that we see, uh, like, for instance, the way in which we've already been noticing, for instance, kind of from afar, to some extent. If, uh, from afar, I mean, because we're not up to the stories of Luthien and Melian in uh, the way that Christopher is presenting the revisions during this period, and yet even from afar, we can see that Melian as the mother, you know, bearing a child, Luthien, uh, to an elf, Thingol um, is pushing in the opposite direction, or maybe to say it the other way around, where he's going with trying to make the Ainur in general, the Valar especially, uh, fit into the story of the world. Um, he is pushing in the opposite direction of where Melian has to be, right, in order to, uh, in order for the for the myth of Luthien uh, and Beren to happen. Um, and yet, he's certainly not. Kind of uh, backing down from that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, now, uh, 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 Narnath, uh, I, I like that name, uh, on Twitch says, uh, uh, What was Tolkien's plan for law and customs? Uh, who is the intended audience? That's really uncertain to me. Um, I don't know to what extent. Um, I don't. I'm not sure, honestly. Um, I mean, think about some of the other things that Christopher publishes, like in Unfinished Tales. Think about the essay on the Astari. Think about the essay on the Palantiri, right? Um, uh, you know, stuff like that, right? There's a lot of things that he wrote during this time period, and we're we're talking about the same general time period as, uh, as those things were written, um, in which it's not really clear who or even in a sense if there's an intended audience for this like did he did, is there a volume in which he expects the laws and customs of the Eldar to be included even if the Silmarillion were to be published, if he were to complete this increasingly enormous task of fully integrating the Silmarillion stories into this new story world this new narrative world um if he did that, would he include the laws and customs? Would it be a uh, maybe an appendix? There, I'm not sure. But it's it's kind of a it's kind of a free floating text, right? Yeah, Tony was speculating, and uh, Brian maybe uh, uh, something like an appendix to the Silmarillion. It certainly, if anything, has a kind of flavor that's sort of like the flavor of some of the appendices uh, to the Lord of the Rings. Um, You know, so, um, yeah, Stephen says it's almost like he's trying to develop an RPG source book uh, before that's even a thing. Yeah, it is. It is. And I agree with Kit, who I think is expressing a similar um, idea there that basically his first audience is himself. He is working out these ideas first and foremost. Um, And it may well be that that was the intention in Laws and Customs, that it's not that he necessarily is expecting or, or planning to publish the text that he is currently writing in the form in which he currently writes it. Um, but that he wants to articulate these things so as to help him in the project of going back and reworking, you know, the, the, the stuff that he was working on. Um, David, I, 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 that's the other thing that I was reflecting on as well is the other sort of genre of Tolkien's work in the 1950s that this resembles are some of his letters, right? So many letters that he received asking questions w- would prompt, uh, significant quantities of world building in response. Right. Um, uh, you know, a- a- as if he hadn't really thought about this particular issue until someone asks the question. And when they do ask the question, he, uh, sometimes doesn't, you know, want to give the answer. Sometimes finds that he has the answer, right. And, and gives it, um, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I, I, I don't know if uh, this is something that he was intending to send to someone, perhaps, uh, who was inquiring about this stuff. Um, I don't know. I, I think that doesn't strike me as very likely. It doesn't feel like that, but that's a pretty squishy response, right? I certainly don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. Yana, um, I uh, I agree. Yana's question uh, is, uh, you know, why wasn't more of this published as an appendix? Um, I think Christopher has already that is Yana's question is why didn't Christopher publish it anywhere? I mean, Christopher could have included it, uh, as an appendix to the Silmarillion. Um, and Yana, it's to me in some ways, even more striking that he didn't even include it in unfinished tales. We get all that stuff about Galadriel and Kelleborn, right? Which I'm not complaining that we did, right? But I mean, he put all that stuff in and a lot of that is really like speculative. Let me go back and do four different versions of the Galadriel and Celeborn story. So, um, it doesn't seem like it's, it's not like it wouldn't fit in there in some way. And as I already said, it strikes me as kind of similar in tone to the, um, uh, to the essay on the Astari. It, certainly it, it's more coherent than the essay on the Astari. Um, coherent. I mean, in the sense that the essay, you know, the section on the Astari is a bunch of fragmentary things, some of which conflicts with itself. Right. Um, that uh that that Christopher gives so this would seem clearly at least a more cohesive thing that he could have included at least in unfinished tales if not as an appendix but i suspect the answer and again this is just sort of a guess uh on my part um i and i'm well okay i say just a guess let me modify that a little bit and say based on the confessions that Christopher was making in the section right before this, when he was kind of opening his heart a little bit more about the choices that he made and sort of uh, reflecting back on some of those choices and even openly regretting some of the choices that he made in his editorial time, um, you know, in the mid-70s, before The Silmarillion was published, one of the things that he emphasized was that his primary... Focus at that time in that earlier earlier editorial period um, was he was very concerned to eliminate apparent inconsistencies. Um, like I said, there's there's rival versions of stories in unfinished tales already, so um, you know that's that doesn't seem to have been driving him quite to that extent uh, at that, but. but There's no question that there are some parts of the laws and customs of the Eldar that are startling Um, and which I think probably, I would guess, failed his consistency test back when he was editing The Silmarillion such that he would have felt that including it as an appendix Uh, to the Silmarillion would have raised far more questions in the minds of readers than it would have answered, perhaps. Um, But, um, anyway, yeah. uh, Yeah, Robbie says, uh, would there be any particular reason that Christopher might have published certain things in Unfinished Tales relative to a resurgence of interest uh, in the Lord of the Rings in the late 70s to early 80s, uh, trying to connect it to the Lord of the Rings more? Yeah, Robbie, I mean, certainly obviously there is stuff in there, right? I mean we get the you know, the 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 poor, truncated, uh tragically unfinished chunk of the Tuor story, right? Of the, you know, the long, newer uh fall of Gondolin story, um, which Tolkien tragically didn't finish. We get the new material for the Turin Tour story, right? The stuff which gets fully integrated into the text, uh, in The Children of Hurin uh later on. Um, so like there's some Silmarillion bits, and then, of course, we get the Second Age stuff, you know, Eldarion and Arendis and stuff, the Numenorean stuff. Um, so it's not like everything in Unfinished Tales is all about Lord of the Rings all the time. But, Robbie, I absolutely agree with you that I think that the primary motivator uh, there was—I mean there, I mean when Unfinished Tales was published—was to give people what people wanted, which is more Lord of the Rings content, right? That has always struck me as the primary function, the number one function uh, that Unfinished Tales fills. Right, Um, what he gave them, what he could tell them about wizards and Palantiri and Galadriel and you know uh, Isildur and the battle, the disaster of the Gladden Fields, right, and the Fords of Isen and the hunt for the Ring and uh, the quest of Erebor, right, and all these things. would have been, have always been, right, of really great interest to Tolkien fans who love The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, And that's got to be, I mean, I know it was for me when I first read Unfinished Tales, totally the selling point, right? Um, uh, I, uh, so, um, that's, uh, even if you think about it, then even the Silmarillion material that makes its way in, right, uh, to... Unfinished Tales, is new story material, right? Here's some of the major stories that have been released in the Silmarillion, and here's, like, new versions that you've never read before, right? Which is different from something like the Laws and Customs among the LR, right? Uh, Which would not have been, perhaps, quite as uh, powerful in that way. And you're right uh george Turin is at least mentioned right uh in the Lord of the Rings he comes up right so uh that's uh something i suppose um but yeah um I know murray laws and customs is not unfinished right I, I agree i mean this then then there's that right that you have i mean it's why from a certain der- perspective it does seem to me simply odd that Christopher never did publish this never did include it in any of the stuff i mean i until now obviously um but i mean to be totally honest and i said this last week or the week before even in morgoth's ring he's buried this buried it is it even in the index i don't even think it's in the index and and not not the index the table of contents is it in the table of, cause i don't think it's in the table of contents i mean look at the table of contents right now um, cuz i don't think it is uh, as a subheading, yeah, it's as as a subheading, like a part, just like you know, the Valaquenta, the earliest version, laws and customs among the Eldar, later version of the story of Finway and Muriel, of Feanor and the Unchaining of Melkor, as if it's just like, a like a chapter or a you know like a subheading, just like every other subheading, uh, you know, under the the section heading. Second phase of the later Quintus Silmarillion, right? Um, whereas, again, if if I had been publishing this, I would have been pretty tempted to be like Morgoth's Ring, featuring the Athrabeth and laws and customs among the Eldar, right? I mean, I'd have been. That's you know, that would have been up in up in the big letters for me. Um, but um, anyway, that's. Uh, yeah, like I said, even in this volume, I don't feel like Christopher has done it anything like the justice uh, that it uh, that it deserves. And I feel like there's got to be a reason for that. And I, I, if I had to guess, I would go back to that even now, even though he was admitting earlier in this volume itself, just a few pages ago, within the context of the, where we are in the book, um, uh, that he um, that he th- that he. Th- was overly concerned perhaps uh, to present a consistent story um, that in retrospect, he kind of wishes he'd left more of the uncertainties and inconsistencies in there. Um, Even in that frame of mind, there seems to be something which leads him, I don't know what, is it too strong to say to reject this or not to shine the spotlight on it that it could well have received? Uh, that I think it would certainly bear, uh, if he wanted to do that. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, I, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, no, and Marie, you're right. Um, Marie is pointing out, and, and this bears, Marie, I was forgetting about this element, but you're right, this element is very relevant, uh, to the question of who's the intended audience and what's going on here. Um, don't forget that, as Marie was just reminding me, it it has the frame, right? I mean, the Alfwina frame exists in the laws and customs of the Eldar. So it's, although it may well be, Kit, as you were suggesting before, like he himself is the primary audience of this, as he's working through these ideas, it is part of the fictional frame, right? I mean, it partakes of that fictional frame. Um, and even the way in which he, remember in the very beginning where he bracketed those first two paragraphs almost arbitrarily as far as we can see uh, because they don't sound particularly preambulatory uh, and uh, and instead says, you know, calls that Alphawina's preamble, right? Which suggests that he wrote it right and then was imagining actively imagining packaging it right within the frame uh the alphina frame the book of lost tales frame that he's still utilizing right still still utilizing throughout these later texts um he's he's not only it's not just that it spontaneously emerged within the context of that frame it's that he is clearly Uh, based on the marginal commentary, I say clearly, uh, it would seem to me pretty clear, uh, that he is imagining pushing it into, right? Um, uh, Adapting it further, or sort of uh, integrating it more perfectly with the frame. Um, And, uh, by the way, that makes me wonder if that's what he meant by Alfwina's preamble. Uh, Maybe instead of isolating those two paragraphs and saying, I think that this is a perfect preamble by Alfwina, instead... Perhaps he was, what he meant to indicate there was we should replace, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to replace this with a preamble from Alphina or, you know, Alphina's preamble needs to come before this or, or something like that. I, I wonder if that's what he meant. Um, in any, in either case, whether he was envisioning a preamble by alfwina that he never wrote, um, or whether he was in some way going to recast those two paragraphs in order to be a preamble by Alphina, I'm not sure. Um, But again, in either case, it certainly suggests that the process of forming this text into, in some sense, a, you know, a sort of functioning part of the fictional whole that he was working on seems to be in his mind. Right. So uh, he certainly does seem to mean it for publication um, uh, in, or, you know, at least as much as, as the rest of it uh, uh, does um, yeah, yeah um, exactly, exactly, Marie the intention was there to make this what the elves told Alfwina, right, so this is Alfwina's like, well, I was going to say anthropological um, uh, study, right, of the elves, but that's not quite right, what would it be the Eldarological uh, study uh, of the elves, uh, something like that. You know, uh, um I don't know. But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tony, it's an interesting question. Um, uh, how does the Bilbo frame he hints at in The Lord of the Rings fit into that choice? Uh, we have as yet seen nothing. Um, And this is a thing worth noting, at least in passing, right, that for all that we've talked about the frame, um, and we have often reverted to that mention, right, to Bilbo's translations from the Elvish, and we know that that exists. Indeed, it was an even stronger element of the story in Tolkien's first version, as you'll Many of you will recall in the first version of the Many Partings chapter and their departure to return home to the Shire from Rivendell, um, originally the the books of lore, the translations from the Elvish, were given as a gift to Sam from Bilbo instead of the last drop of the Smaug vintage in order for Sam to get married. Um, It was the books that he gave to Sam the first time. So uh, we know that that element of the story, that concept of Bilbo, uh you know handing the lore uh the elvish lore that he has picked up in rivendell um and uh you know propagating that among the hobbits through frodo but of course ultimately and primarily through sam um was an idea that was in tolkien's head from practically the beginning of the writing of the end of the story right um uh, so my point is The concept of Bilbo as narrator and Sam as transmitter is there. And from the context of this text, um, not just this particular text, but almost all of the texts. No, I think absolutely all of the texts that we've been reading in Morgoth's Ring, um, that idea is already on the table. And yet there's not been a whisper of it. I don't recall anything that. Tolkien himself wrote, any of the Tolkien texts from this period. Um, Not Christopher's commentary, though Christopher certainly hasn't talked about it much either. Um, But I don't remember anything that Tolkien's texts that we've been reading here in this book so far have said, which have hinted or pointed at the idea of Bilbo as narrator, as any kind of a shift or recontextualization or further layer Right. Um, I mean, it could be Alfwina's text, you know, Pengo out to Alfwina and then like Bilbo. I I mean, it's obviously it's a different frame. Right. Um, But we haven't seen any hint of it. Um, At least I haven't noticed any hint of it. And that's to me very interesting because, again, the idea is there already Um, been there for a long time and that he's not ever even seemed to flirt with it in. The, these entire texts um, is interesting to me and also perhaps helps explain why uh, Christopher felt so shy about it and why he remember he that's the thing that he said in the preface to the uh, first edition or the the preface to the first volume. Right. The Book of Lost Tales, part one, um, where he says that he regrets leaving hobbits entirely out, basically, of the Silmarillion and um because Tolkien didn't make explicit the fact that the Silmarillion was the translations from the Elvish that were handed from Bilbo to Frodo, that he, Christopher, like, didn't have the sort of courage to step into the breach and say, yep, totally hundred percent. This is Bilbo's translations from the Elvish because he felt like he didn't have 100% authorial certification of that. Um, but, Again, as you'll remember in that preface, he kind of apologized for that and said that in retrospect, he thought that was the wrong call. And yet, again, I think in Morgoth's ring, we can begin to see why he doubted it, right? I think perhaps many of us at the time were saying like, yeah, wow, Christopher, you really uh, kind of dropped the ball on that one, right? I mean, like, okay, there's caution. And then there's, you know, uh, caution is one thing and wavering is another, as someone else has said, right? Um you know that uh it's i mean okay like maybe you could see that there's an argument against it but come on like it's pretty clear that that's what was going on there right um and and it might seem perhaps so you know almost timorous of christopher to have done that and yet again morgoth's ring i think shows us why it was not timorousness on uh christopher's part um he has some justification in that as far as we can see It's not on the radar screen, Um, which is fascinating that it isn't. Um, But yet there it is or there it isn't anyway. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah, exactly, Murray. No, I'm not questioning about the uh, you're right that. You know, it was in the Lord of the Rings and kept in the Lord of the Rings and published there means that Tolkien considered that sort of a fixed and true idea. Um, But yeah, exactly. It's the fact, as you say, Marie, that he had never picked that up and worked it through. Right. Um, He had never explained how the Alfwina Pengoad frame is going to, um, you know, kind of could in some way be made to fit with a further Bilbo frame, or replaced it with a Bilbo frame at all. Okay, anyway, (laughs) this is all me doing a terrible job of making sure we get through the end of uh, the Laws and Customs Among the Eldar today. So let's get back into it. All right. Remember, we were talking about names, and we did father names and mother names last time. Um, so let's look at some, uh, some of these names which are not in the Silmarillion, right? Um, so that, uh, just in case all of us wanted to be able to throw out more names uh, to further confuse people already confused by the number of names in the Silmarillion. Finway then named his second son by another mother, Indus, also Finway, modifying it later to Nolo Finway. But the mother name which Indus gave to him was Ingoldo signifying that he was partly of both the Ingar, people of Ingwe, her own kin, and of the Noldor. By this name, he also became generally known, though after the rule of the Noldor was committed to him by Manwe, in place of his elder brother and father, he took the name of Finwe and was in fact usually called Ingoldo Finwe. Similarly, the third son was Arafinwe and also Ingalaure, because he had the golden hair of his mother's kin. So, yes, so those elves usually known as Fingolfin and Finarfin uh eventually Finarfin, uh we finally come around to Finarfin now I think. Um yes, though with a PH as I recall, at last uh at last reference. Um uh anyway, it's um he's giving us a glimpse, and I love this as a piece of retcon, it's like The Silmarillion has never even been published, right? Very few people have yet had the opportunity to drown in the sea of alternative names that are presented in The Silmarillion, but it's like With the clear eye towards the future, the future that he won't live himself to see, uh, Tolkien is anticipating uh, that that will happen someday uh, and is delightfully telling us that indeed the names that we have in the record are but the tip of the nomenclature iceberg uh, of these of these elves. Um, uh, So there we go. Yes. Now, Tony says this settles the hair color question for Phanarfin. Yes. I would point out, though, we do not yet have a hair color question. Um, The question of who has what hair color has never yet arisen explicitly in my memory. That is, there's been some reference to a couple elves, like golden-haired Glorfindel, right, in the original Fall of Gondolin, for instance. Um, But... um, uh, Very, I mean, this is true of many of the characters that Tolkien writes. He very rarely gives us um, description, physical descriptions like that at all. Right. I mean, what color is Pippin's hair? Right. You know, what color is Gimli's hair? Does he ever say? I don't think he ever says. Um, uh, you know, we there exactly there are sometimes like with Goadriel, uh, Tony of course, where like her hair color is a big deal, right? So he makes a big deal of her hair color uh, in the story. Um, but again, it's not he's not one for routine physical description um, of any of his characters, and this is certainly more true in the old Silmarillion, even than it was in the Lord of the Rings, but even in the Lord of the Rings, he doesn't usually go there. Um, so, um, you know, I, and it's f- almost funny to me. Uh, I've known a lot of Tolkien fans who are, um uh, I've known a lot of Tolkien fans who get really, like, I don't know if upset is quite the right fair word to use, but who get really activated about um, the hair color of elves, right? Um, And will, like, start jumping up and down if you, like, imagine, you know, uh, uh, one of the Noldor with blonde hair, right? Um, You know, who is not Finarfin or one of his children. And, uh, and I, I always have to admit that I'm a little bit, um, I don't know. I'm always a little bit reserved about that because, I mean, my goodness, if there's something which Tolkien has proven again and again that he really doesn't care very much about, it's that. So I have a hard time getting all bent out of shape about it. Uh, but, um, anyway, (laughs) um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Yeah, Bruce. I agree. All, Bruce says all I know for sure is that Boromir was a Viking, right? Yeah, no, no pants and a horned helmet. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I agree. And uh, goodness knows, Aragorn doesn't wear pants either, right? Real men don't wear pants. Everybody. That's that's. I think, I think all of our imaginations have been very rightly formed in in those directions uh, by films of our. Distant youths. Um, Okay. Anyway. um, Okay. So. Names. Anyway. um, This is... One last point that I want to just touch on here before we move on. um, Is the naming after the father, right? That's pretty striking. And something which, remember what I said about uh, maybe um, the laws and customs, uh, maybe making Christopher's, you know, consistency, uh, you know, just kind of made him twitchy, right? On the consistency thing. Um, Because there are other places where Tolkien says, yeah, no, elves don't name they like their names uh, you know they don't name their names after other now again in this context he's explained the whole thing right we get the fuller version here their own names right the names that they name themselves right the names which are like their true names which are you know which emerge from their lamatiave that they 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 they're, they're, they're um, uh, th- that's those are not going to be they're not going to share those in common with any other uh, elf um and he, but here like so finway's other two sons are both also called finway, right um it's um uh, uh, i don't know David Attlee is wondering if uh if this is supposed to be a clue that there's something fishy about finway um that this is the second counter cultural choice he's depicted as making, um yeah, I really want. Uh, I really want more kids so much that I would please like to divorce my dead wife. Um, And when I do get a second wife, uh, get a ruling in my favor, and I come to a uh, a mutual severance agreement with my deceased wife, um, then I'm going to name all my kids after myself, right? Um, I, you know... exactly. And Bruce, yes, both Jennifer and Bruce and I were all thinking about Finway as the George Foreman of elves, right? Uh, For those of you who don't know the reference, George Foreman, who named all of his children George, uh, including his sons and daughters, all named George. Um, It's exactly what it's kind of like, actually. Uh, But, um, yeah, yeah. Um, So... Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, do I think that Tolkien is suggesting that here? No, I don't. I don't think that he's... that we should be raising our eyebrows about Finway here, that this is kind of a red flag about Finway. Um, but uh, it's... Um, I agree. It's a little bit interesting, right? Let's keep going. Let's plunge ahead. Okay. Now the Eldar are immortal within Arda according to their right nature, but but if a fea, or spirit, indwells in and coheres with a hrondo, changed to hroa, or bodily form, that is not of its own choice but ordained and is made of the flesh or substance of Arda itself, then the fortune of this union must be vulnerable by the evils that do hurt to Arda, even if that union be by nature and purpose. Permanent. Okay, that's quite a sentence, uh, and it's a harder to follow with the changes of uh, uh, of word and stuff. Um, so let's let's do that again, uh, and I'll skip some bits. Now, the Eldar are immortal within Arda according to their right nature, but if a Fea indwells in and coheres with a Hroa, that is not its own choice, but ordained, and is made of the flesh or substance of Arda itself. Then the fortune of this union must be vulnerable to the evils that do hurt to Arda, even if that nature be, the union be by nature and purpose permanent. So the bodies that elves are assigned it first. So the elves have spirits, right? That is the essence of elves, and what they are is their spirits, their fea, right? Um, they're assigned a roa, right? They don't choose the roa. The Hroa is not—so despite the fact that we have this high level of coherence between the, bo- the mind and the body, right, between the spirit and the body, between the Thea and the Hroa uh, of an elf, as he's maintained from the beginning of this whole section, that does not mean that the elves choose their bodies, nor does it mean that the bodies are merely a physical bodying forth of the spirit, kind of like we saw with the Valar right that's not how incarnation works among the elves when the spirit of an elf finds itself plopped into a body plopped perhaps not the best choice of verb but you're following me right when they're when they find themselves um you know when when they're no I'm sticking with it when they're plopped into a into a roa right um they don't choose it they don't choose it um it's by fortune, presumably by providence, as it's kind of a Luvatar who does the plopping in this instance, right? Um, and yet, since their bodies are formed of the substance of Arda itself, which is marred, then there might be evils intrinsic to the union of the Fea and the Hroa, despite the fact That that union is meant to be permanent. So the bodies that elven spirits are incarnated in are not chosen by them. There is, in a sense, like a different origin of their spirits and their bodies, right? They didn't make their spirits. They didn't make their bodies. They didn't choose either one. And they're put together, right? And bound together together. In a union which is designed to be permanent, but there can be problems now. remember this is one of the things that he was kind of pointing at with the whole unrequited love thing remember um why should they not be perfectly happy why is why are they you know why aren't they like Adam and Eve in the garden um or at least as Adam and Eve have often been understood to be or to have been in the garden um why is not everything hunky-dory with them? Why should there be suffering? Why should there be um, frustrated desire? Or any of uh, any of those things? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, okay, David, you're right. David is saying this sentence doesn't say anything about Ardemard, and you're right. Um, I was talking about then. In then, the fortune of this union must be vulnerable by the evils that do hurt to Arda, um, even if that union be by nature and purpose permanent. It is possible, David, that he is there referring to about the the vulnerability of the union between the body and the spirit, right, would be vulnerable uh, by the evils that do hurt to Arda, meaning an elf's body could be killed even if Arda weren't marred. I agree with that. But I don't... Th- it's not just the union that's vulnerable. It's the fortune of the union that is vulnerable. Um, the extent to which the union between the spirit and body of a particular elf is a fortunate union. The degree to which that union is fortunate is vulnerable by the evils that do her to Arda, according to the syntax of that sentence. In other words, I take that to mean sometimes things don't always work out. The marriage between the Fea and the Hroa of a given elf isn't always a happy marriage, necessarily. Um, and that's what makes me think that he's not saying explicitly, but pointing to um, Arda Mard when he's talking about how the evils that do hurt to Arda, not just do hurt to people inside Arda. Right But to Arta itself, um that I think that the idea of Arta being hurt, I think he is referring to Artemard there, um Tony says, why am I thinking of Aol? Yeah, I don't know, but I mean certainly, yeah, there there are some issues here, right um I mean, heck, Tony, it kind of makes me think of Feanor to some extent, um but um, yeah, Jennifer was just saying the same thing, Feanor's uh fea Hroa, uh you know, his fare was really destructive to his hroa. Um Yes. <laughs> and the, the Hroa of many others as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. All right. So not all is necessarily always well in the body spirit relationship, despite the fact that we have that increased level of coherence that we've, uh, uh, that we've talked about. Um, okay. For in spite of this union, which is of such a kind that according to unmarred nature, no living person incarnate may be without a Fea, nor without a Hrondo, changed to Hroa. I'm just going to say Hroa from now on to avoid confusion. Um, yet Fea and Hroa are not the same things, and though the Fea cannot be broken or disintegrated by any violence from without, the Hroa can be hurt and may be utterly destroyed. Okay, so the Hroa can be destroyed, but the Fea cannot. Um, No living person incarnate may be without a Fea, nor without a Hroa. So, that sounds to me just this side of tautological. In other words, in order to be incarnate, in order to be a spirit incarnated in a body, you have to have both a spirit and a body, right? Um, There are no among um. According to unmarred nature, no living person incarnate. Like to be a living person incarnate means to have both. Okay. Um. Tony's wondering if this uh, does this eliminate soulless orcs, possibly possible yeah John it does sound like that's the essence of being incarnate right so uh the essence of being incarnate is that you have a spirit incarnated in a body there's got to be a spirit there's got to be flesh right if you don't have that then you don't have uh, a person incarnate yes <laughs> I, I agree i agree um uh that seems to be that seems to be the case um But notice, the fea is not subject to violence from without, right? Harm can come to it from within, but not from without, whereas the body can be destroyed. And thus, it would seem to me, and that's why I was hinting before, that the fea seems to be that thing which really is like the essence. If, again, the Eldar are immortal within Arda, according to their right nature, as he begins by saying here, uh, then that basically means they're Fea because their Hroa is not like the, the, the Hroar of the Eldar are not in fact, um, immortal within Arda according to their right nature in a sense. I mean, they, they, they can be destroyed. Right. Um, but if they're destroyed, it doesn't mean that the, you know, the elf in question is, uh, is destroyed. Um, So yeah Kevin is saying is the spirit and soul the same thing as this dichotomy the whole yeah uh, uh, Kevin you're asking right if he's uh, if he's imagining a, a bipartite or tripartite person here right body soul and spirit or just spirit and or, and and you know body and spirit um right yes it, it bipartite seems to be What he seems to be suggesting here. I don't see any evidence, certainly here. Um, This seems to be a two-body problem, as far as Tolkien is concerned. Um, If I'm hearing him correctly, that's what I'm hearing. I don't see any distinction there. Um, uh, Okay. (laughs) Oh, man. You guys are always right with the really really difficult questions, which of course is exactly I think where Tolkien went too. Uh, Jennifer uh, Jennifer Ewing is asking about the uh, the fae of the elves that were the fae of the elves that were enslaved by Morgoth. I know, right? That's 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 the trick. That's the trick. Um, oh no, I'm sorry, Jennifer. You're not asking about orcs. You're asking about those like upon whom the spell of Bottomless Dread was cast, right? You know, hasn't their fae been hurt? from without. <clears throat> kind of seems like it, doesn't it? That's a very interesting question. He says cannot be broken or disintegrated by any violence from without. I wonder if perhaps that's not exactly what um I wonder if that's not exactly perhaps what it what he means there? Not that... I certainly doubt that he is saying nothing that anyone from outside does can harm the Thea in any way. Um, Because that your spirit can be wounded. um, We know this to be true. Like, Celebrion's spirit was wounded, right? Um, And although she was healed in body, she could not be healed in spirit. And so sought the havens. Right. Elrond's wife. Um, so I don't think that he is trying to suggest that, you know, the psyches of elves are inviolate against anything that happens outside. What he's talking about is being broken or disintegrated. Like you, they can't be killed. Their spe- no matter what happens, the fea of an elf will not cease, uh, nor will it... Um, again it's not that it will be utterly unaffected by everything that happens to it uh but it's not going to like you can you can the 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 body of an elf will stop ticking right um but the spirit never will right it may need some time right to recover and to seek healing but not to be broken or disintegrated in the way that their bodies can be um Yeah, yeah, exactly, Kevin. They're not that kind of thing. That does seem to be the distinction that he's making here, that a living incarnate person means both things. They've got a fae and they've got a Hroa, but these two things aren't equal. And they're certainly not an equal part of the whole immortality gig that the Eldar have within Arda, right? That seems to be what he's getting at. Again, not that they are... As I say, inviolate to any external influence, exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway. If then the Hroa be destroyed, or so hurt that it ceases to have health, sooner or later it dies. That is, it becomes painful for the fea to dwell in it, being neither a help to life and will, nor a delight to use, so that the thea departs from it, and its function being at an end, its coherence is unloosed, and it returns again to the general chron, changed to Orma of Arda. That is, the bodies of elves do in fact decompose, right? It returns again to the general substance of Arda. Then the thea is, as it were, houseless. And it becomes invisible to bodily eyes, though clearly perceptible by direct awareness to other fear. Okay, faar of course, with the R being the plural, just to make sure that's clear. Okay. What does it mean for an elvish body to die, therefore? Right? Um, <clears throat> it becomes painful for the feyar to dwell in it, being neither a help to life and will, nor a delight to use. So, uh, if your body gets all wrecked, right? Um, and is nothing but a source of pain, they can go. So, yes, Kevin, in a sense, that sounds right. Um, Kevin says, does that mean that elf death is ultimately voluntary? <laughs> and then he clarifies, seriously coerced, but voluntary, right? Like, if they, you know, had um, Fingolfin wanted to stay in his broken body, right? I mean, there's Morgoth pounding on his corpse, right? Um, the Hroar of Fingolfin took a big beating that day. Um, but the implication of this passage, Kevin, because I'm reading it the same way you are, I think, this passage seems to imply that if he would tried, if he wanted to, he could have stuck it out, right? His Thea was not forcibly ejected from his Hroah by his injuries, in the same way that, you know, when the body dies, the spirit of humans seems to go away, right, involuntarily. Not, not with. Not, it's not to say that humans can't choose death, but you see, see what what we mean there. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Stephen. Wasn't really a delight to use anymore. No, no, it, I mean, it, like, the, his Froa was totaled, right? Um, but he could have done that, I guess, I think, right? Um, the Thea departs from it, and its function being at an end, its coherence is unloosed, right? So that coherence between Thea. And raw, which so marks the existence of elves and differentiates them, the degree of coherence differentiates them from humans, um, that coherence is dissolved. And so we get a decomposing elvish body. Right? Um, yeah. 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 Um, Yeah, Kevin says, I imagine Fanor might have stayed no matter what if he could. Uh, Yeah, well, ironically, right, it's his Fea, which, you know, you talk about uh, the Fea consuming the Hroa, right? I mean, Fanor is like the the textbook case, right? Um, (laughs) Tarloniel says, now she's imagining the Black Knight from Monty Python as an elf refusing to be evicted, right? Yeah, yeah right uh, I mean, maybe uh he could get better um uh, <laughs> sorry to be mixing my scenes from the Holy Grail there um, yeah <laughs> yeah, hang, you're not fooling anyone, you know, um okay that does seem to me what he suggests, the voluntary departure, right? I'm not saying that I... I, I, I it, the impression that I'm getting here is that for someone to choose such a thing, right? So for somebody like Golfin to cling to his croix, right, even after it was beat up in the way that it was, right? Um, certainly not a delight to use, uh, nor a help to life right um and its function being at it was at an end right all of those things being true of fingolfin's roa had he clung to it that would have been bad i think a bad sign um and i almost wonder kevin if that's why fanor's body disintegrated um is that perhaps a sign again We're retconning now, right, with Tolkien here. Is that perhaps a sign that um, that was what was happening, right? That that might be one version of what it looks like, especially when the spirit of fire tries to cling to his body? Um, uh, you know, yeah, um, yeah, okay, um, yeah, Kevin, I do agree. Uh comparing and contrasting um the deaths of Fanor and Saruman are it, that is interesting, I believe. Um uh, yeah, no. Yeah, Robbie, we're uh we're getting there. We're getting you're right that he's going you know, uh, many of these questions that we're raising and talking about here uh are he comes back to them uh later on. Um I know I'm Trying not to think about those because I'm trying to focus on what he's unfolding here, because, again, what is interesting to me uh, is um, it's not just the story, but to to revert to my ancient days uh, back when I was a physicist uh, in college, uh, it's not the story itself uh, that I am most interested when reading this, it's the Delta story, right? Uh, the amount that the story is changing over time. Um, so looking at where he is, um, looking at where he is in his conception, in his world building with elves right now, right in this little glimpse, um, is really fascinating. And it will only be more fascinating when we see him revisit these ideas later on. Um, so (laughs) Matt, I knew you would like that one. Yeah. Yeah, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, exactly, Kevin, exactly. Since the later versions aren't necessarily mere clarifications of this, but can well be a change of mind, um, figuring out what he means right now and what he seems to be getting at right now is, to me, really important. Indeed, requisite, I would say, if we're even to understand whether or not he is later merely clarifying, or whether he has changed his mind, right? Only by really kind of looking at each one of them in their own terms, um, uh, uh, can we really can we really uh, uh, even be equipped to 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 perceive that kind of a difference. And, um, uh, and this is why, by the way, I have not read the last like any of these last three volumes of the history of Middle-earth for many years. I, I, I like have been abstaining from reading them ever since we started for this exact reason, because I didn't want to like confuse my, because I'm so easily confused. Uh, so I've been trying to sort of stay in the moment throughout our walk through the history of Middle-earth. So now it's been so long since we started this, that it's been years and years now since I've read any uh, of this stuff. With a couple exceptions, I have read the Athrobath since we started uh, confession on my part. Um, but like, yeah, like uh, the the stuff in the next two volumes, I've not looked at for like almost ten years now because uh, I've been waiting for it. Right as we've been as we've been uh, as I, I'm trying to uh, trying to live in the moment with uh, uh, with our with our discussions here. Um, but uh, anyway. Um, Good. Now, Marilyn says, doesn't voluntarily, the, the voluntary quitting of the Roa conflict with his views of suicide? Great question, Marilyn. No, I wouldn't think so. In fact, this is very much like... Oh, who was it who was talking about uh, the Numenoreans? Uh, some, oh, yeah, uh, Matt Cannon was saying that this sounds like the Numenorians giving back the gift, right? Yeah, it sounds more like that, certainly, to me than it does sound like suicide or perhaps... Matt, the better way to say it would be that the Numenorians sound like this, right? Now, obviously, it's different. Even with Numenorians, it's different because they're mortals, right? And so, for somebody to do like Numenorians used to do back in the good old days, or like Aragorn does, we're told in the beginning of the Fourth, day, fourth Age, is it's a different deal for them than for elves. And, Meryl, and this is where it seems to me the most important lies, difference lies between um, suicide and. Um, uh, and what the elves are doing here. Because, I mean, what is suicide? When we're just talking about... Okay, so they... The Fea isn't connected with Ahroa anymore. What does that have to do with it? Notice that, like, dies is, is, is in quotation marks, right? He's put it in inverted commas, as he might say there, right? Um, because um, it's it's not actually death. So, in that sense suicide is is it's not that suicide is okay among elves it's impossible among elves i mean you can't commit suicide um you can give up on your roa you can give up on your roa prematurely right um but uh but you can't in the same way that a human can commit suicide um uh but um yeah. Anyway, there's more on this, and we'll keep um, uh, we'll keep uh, we'll keep going. Yeah, Stephen says that what what this and the Numenorian thing seem to have in common um, is both are a recognition of when it's time to leave, um, rather than simply deciding to to give up on everything. Neither one of them, neither the giving back the gift like the Numenorians would have done, like Aragorn did, or an elf. Uh, Whose froar whose froa is um you know totaled as i said um, neither one of them is submitting to despair or anything like that right it's the, i mean it's like the time has come right um uh there's a there's a there's a humility there's a submission in that right um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Whereas Jennifer, you're right. The idea of suicide is that it is an intrinsically violent act. It is a a rejection of the connection between spirit and body, right? It's it's like a, a rejection of the gift, right? Um, uh to use that Numenorian term. So again it would be it would be very it would be very different. Um, um yes exactly kevin it's the willfulness versus humility um is that is is really the difference there between this kind of submission and and suicide yeah yeah um good okay let's keep going i'm not making good time (laughs) i'm gonna end up doing a third week on the laws and customs anyway okay So why are elves more robust than men? Remember that? Remember the the references in the Silmarillion to how, you know, elves are uh, like way more, like they're more resistant to cold, right? You just like, you can't, you can't, uh, uh, can't, they just, they bounce back from everything, right? Um, Why is that exactly? What's the mechanism there? Why should that be? Uh, And remember, we were talking about this question last time about how it's possible to read Talking stuff and be like, boy, elves just get the best of everything, right? Humans get the shaft. They're like, you know, lame in everything. And elves have like all the best of everything, right? And one of the things that I was suggesting last week we can see as a pattern in the laws and customs of the Eldar is him pointing out it might look like that, but that's not, that's not the fact. It's not that elves are just, you know, Iluvatar's favorites uh, and, you know, men get the, get the scraps. It's. It looks like that because of how their systems are designed, but it's just different, not better. Anyway, so more on this mechanism. This destruction of the Hroa, causing death or the unhousing of the Theia, was soon experienced by the immortal Eldar when they awoke in the marred and overshadowed realm of Arda. Indeed, in their earlier days, death came more readily, for their bodies were then less different from the bodies of men and the command of their spirits over their bodies less complete. Let's pause, let's do this one paragraph at a time. Um, in their earlier days, my understanding of that phrase, indeed in their earlier days death came more readily, um, doesn't mean, like back when they were fresh out of Quivienin, right when like the waters of Quevenen were still dripping off of them they you know but i mean like they used to die at the drop of a hat right um but then they toughened up over time i think in their earlier days means in the entire first age possibly first through third ages in fact um the contrast is not between the early elves right after Quevenen and the later elves during the wars of Beleriand but rather the early elves during the whole early period and the faded elves, the post-consumption of their body by their spirit elves, the invisible elves that we were looking at and talking about at the end last time. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um So, this seems, my first response to this paragraph is that it seems vastly counterintuitive, right? Vastly counterintuitive because so many times we have perceived the pattern in Tolkien to be like things being stronger and like weakening over time, right? That decline over time is a pretty stable feature of middle earth and not just of middle earth of the earlier myths too i mean it's one of the things that makes that such a stable pattern is that it it fits all of it right generally speaking um with some aberrations like you know the indication of the renewal of uh, the trees and the reigniting of the magic sun and all that stuff from the early legends and stuff but that's a admittedly rolling the clock back, right? Um, Not the normal pattern of things. Anyway, at first glance, this looks counterintuitive. It seems like, okay, so in the old days they were weak, but what, they're getting stronger over time? Like, boy, nowadays it's super hard to kill an elf, whereas back in the old days you used to be, you bump into an elf and it's like, oops, I just incapacitated your roa there, didn't I? Sorry about that. Um, I so there's going to be more that he's going to explain about that so he, but again i think the important thing here is that back when their bodies and spirits were related to each other like they were in the old days it was easier for them to die um, so fingolfin getting right his proab beaten around by Morgoth in his duel, right? (laughs) What? Had had he just waited, you know, several millennia, um, it wouldn't happen that way. Well, no, it wouldn't happen that way because his roa wouldn't be in the same kind of condition, uh, in the same kind of state. Speaking again, from a physical standpoint, from a physics standpoint, state is in state of matter, right? Almost. Um, their bodies were then less different from the bodies of men. Again, here he does not mean now, you know, elves are what? Shorter, you know, like have much more deficient spleens, right? He's not talking about physiological differences, right? Um, he's, Their bodies were less different from the bodies of men in the sense that like when you poked them, right, you would, you would hit something. You could, like, see them with, like, your eyes and stuff, which you can't do anymore, remember? Like, that's what the fading means. That's what the diminishing means, um, is that they're now pretty much invisible, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what he's talking about. So... Notice now another principle that he's giving us here about that coherence between the spirit and the body, right? Between the fea and the Roa. It's progressive. From the beginning, the fea and the Roa of the elves were more coherent with each other than the spirits and the bodies of men. And yet, that coherence was increasing over time. So the... An elf who's never, whose Hroa has never died, right? Um, someone who's still driving around in his original Hroa. The, 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 the Hroa and the Fea are now, they, like, their relationship has gone somewhere that's completely different from you. Know, like, they can't even be compared to humans anymore, right? Um, the differences between the body-spirit relationship in humans and elves used to be subtle, they're not subtle anymore. Again, invisibility being an example, right, of, uh, uh, of that. Um, and he's characterizing this note as the complete command of their spirits over their bodies. Remember also that the other metaphor that he was using to describe this process is their sp- spirits consuming their bodies, I believe it's the same process he's describing now as the spirits consuming the bodies. All right, well, let's keep reading. This command was never, nonetheless at all times greater than it has ever been among men. From their beginnings, the chief difference between elves and men lay in the fate and nature of their spirits. Let's read. That's a sentence worth reading again. From their beginnings, the chief difference between elves and men lay in the fate and nature of their spirits. The faear of the elves were destined to dwell in Arda for all the life of Arda, and the death of the flesh did not abrogate that destiny. Their faear were tenacious, therefore, of life in the raiment of Arda, and far excelled the spirits of men in power over that raiment. Even from the first days, protecting their bodies from many ills and assaults, such as disease and healing them swiftly of injuries so that they recovered from wounds that would have proved fatal to men so why is it that elves never get sick and elves are really hard to kill and they can make complete recoveries from injuries that would completely destroy men why is that is it because elves are stronger better faster smarter and no it's because the nature of their spirits are different right even when they are in the raiment of Arda, meaning their hroa right um, when they are in their body they're i love the word tenacious there their fare were tenacious of life tenacious of life they could hold on to life because it's what they were destined for now think about that being tenacious of life i think we were talking about the numenorians just a little while back right um the Numenorians become increasingly tenacious of life over time. That's bad when we're talking about the Numenorians, right? For a mortal to become tenacious of life, whether you're in a Numenorian, whether you're one of the Ring Wraiths, right? This is bad um, because that is a violation of the uh, fate and nature of their spirit, right? To do so, to become as a human, as a mortal, tenacious of life, is to deny the fate and nature that you have been given by Iluvatar, right? And therefore, to reject the gifts that he is, the other gifts that he's trying to give you. But for an elf, elves are by their nature tenacious of life, because they are destined to dwell in Arda for all the life of Arda. Um. Yeah. Yeah, Um, and so again, even in the old days, when they were comparatively easy to kill, like you could kill them by sticking pointy objects into them, as happened to many an elf over the course of the Silmarillion, right? Their bodies are slayable by swords and stuff. No longer true, right? Uh, I mean, if you were to stumble across an elf nowadays, you could not kill it by sticking it with pointy objects. That just wouldn't work, right? And even if you had the physical Hroa or semi hroa thing that Morgoth was in and you were stomping on him and you were doing whatever you were doing, just like in your uh your duel with Fingolfin, had Fingolfin endured in his Hroa into the fourth age and beyond, um, he uh wouldn't his body would not have been crushable. Uh to use a wonderful Van Helsingism uh, uh, from Dracula there. Um, uh, Right, or like, exactly, Nancy, falling off a uh, cliff or whatever. Exactly. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, So this is sort of the... So you see the two things that he's clarifying here, right? Elves... The, the the nature of elf bodies has changed because their spirits have changed them. Because the, as the command of the spirits over the bodies has become more complete over time, those two things, the Thea and the Hroa of the elf, are now more inseparable than they were because that coherence has become so close that, you know, you basically can't part them anymore no matter how you try, right? Um... In the older days, it was easier. Again, stick them with pointy objects and their hoa will cease to be commodious anymore and their feo will leave it, right? Again, plenty of examples of such things uh, in the Silmarillion. Um, But nevertheless, they were more tenacious of life. Okay. Um, Yet, Tony, I have no idea if the preservation given by the Elvish Rings may have delayed this process in the Third Age. No idea. Um... I wouldn't think so, as it doesn't seem to be proceeding at any greater rate among elves who are outside the influence of the Elvish Rings, but um... Yeah. Yeah. Um... Jennifer says, yeah, so poor Gorfindel gets a new body. He's got to break in all over again. Yeah. Yeah, well... We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. We'll also come back to the Elvish Rings. Later. Much later. Okay. But back to that fading business. As ages passed, the dominance of their Faar ever increased. Presumably over their hoar, right? Uh, consuming their bodies now in quotation marks right consuming their bodies as has been noted the end of this process is their fading as men have called it for the body becomes at last as it were a mere memory held by the fea. and that end has already been achieved in many regions of middle earth so that the elves are indeed deathless and may not be destroyed or changed Thus it is that the further we go back in the histories, the more often do we read of the death of the elves of old. And in the days when the minds of the Eldalier were young and not yet fully awake, death among them seemed to differ little from the death of men. This is... Um, this is... What fading is, right? He's extremely explicit about that here, right? Um, Sorry, I missed a question from before. Uh, Narnith was asking, does this mean that their spirits are deciding not to get sick? Well, yeah, in a sense, I I think the way that I would put it based on the context from that previous paragraph is if sickness attempts to assail them, their bodies, from without, their spirits just they you know, they take no guff from disease, right? Um they're not having it. Uh and they their um the tenacity of life that their spirits show rubs off on their bodies, right? They are able to because their bodies are obedient. Um so yes, they can if their hoa are banged up but still functional, right? Still able to, their they, their spirits can still, you know, get them back in the game. Um, they can make that happen, right? Whether it's disease or injury. Um, um, yes, Brian. So it's more than just an amazingly powerful immune system. That's exactly it. Again, it's not just that elves are the golden children, right? Who just are fortunate enough never to get diseases or anything. It's, it's, there's, there's a metaphysical explanation, right? It is part of the destiny of their, Spirits enduring for as long as Arda endures, right? It is an inevitable consequence of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yana, I don't think we do have any examples. Can anyone think of any examples of an elf getting sick in the Silmarillion? I mean, poisoned, right? Ardell is poisoned. Um But not, not diseased that I can think of. Um, Not diseased that I can think of. Yeah. Um, Tony asks, is that line in The Fellowship of the Ring about Gore living at once in both worlds um, an influence on this concept? Possibly, I mean, yes, in the sense that it was written before this, and uh, uh, seems relevant to this, yeah, I don't think he's forgotten that passage, um, but um uh, yeah, yeah, um yeah, yeah, no good, yeah, no, I agree, no people. The folks who are d- dying of uh um, like grief or whatever no that does not count as disease we're talking about we're talking about physical contagion here um and uh thomas uh says uh, there's a there's a reason that they one of the names for men is the sickly right because they appear to be like subject to these like diseases which just carry them off right um yeah yeah um Okay. Anyway, um, so do I think it's relevant, Tony? Yes, I think it's relevant. But I don't think that we're yet really talking about what that passage was getting at. Um, I I think that passage is talking about more than just the Thea-Hroa situation, right? Okay. So this is the sense in which... This is the sense in which the... Croa is consumed by the Phaea. And this is also the sense in which they are less subject to death. So what looks like a counterintuitive incline over time instead of decline over time, right, is not actually an incline over time. It's not an increase in power by the elves, but rather uh, an increase in dominance by the Phaea over the Hroa, such that now the consequence of this is that the Hroa is now um, not subject to death. But again, I don't call this an improvement, right? I don't call this a, a, a mere gaining on the part of the elves in question, because notice the metaphors that are being used about this, right? Consuming and fading, right? Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Brian, that also seems to be a corollary. Uh, Brian asks, is it it also a decrease in the ability of the Hroa to impact the world around them? Yes, yes, the upside, the upside is that, uh, they, you can't any longer... You know, it, it's, it's unkillable, the Roa is now, right? Indeed deathless and may not be destroyed or changed. Yeah, again, you can't stick it with pointy objects anymore. It can't be killed. The other side of that equation is that it can no longer stick anybody else with pointy objects, right? Um, they're, 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 they're not going to be able to come and intervene in the events of the world like they could have done back in the old days. Um, and that's the sense... In which they have faded, right? And it does, Jennifer, as you say, explain why we can't see them anymore today. Um, um, yes. Um, now, here's one thing I'm not sure of. Okay. One thing, there's a thing that's happening here, and it's clear that it's happening, but I'm not sure exactly what's happening to it. (laughs) Let's hope that makes a little bit more sense when I explain. The thing that I think is definitely happening here is he's doing some retcon with the concept of the fading elves. Now, you will remember, those of you with... Long memories will recall that that is intrinsic to the elf story from the beginning. It's almost the cornerstone of the elf stories, of Tolkien's whole mythology, right? Um, one way of characterizing in a, in a single sentence what was the point of Tolkien's mythology back in the Book of Lost Tales days is why is it—how did the current elf situation arise? Right. Why is it that we have all these stories about elves and places that like remember elves and think, but but no elves anymore. Right. What happened to them? What came of the elves? Right. And why can't we see them anymore, even crossing the Shire and sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea and leaving us? Right. Um, Why don't we even get Sam Gamgee's degree of melancholy about elves? Right. What happened to the elves? That's. The in one sense, the book of lost tales is a long way of answering that question, right? Um, so that elves have in fact faded away and are no longer a part of our mortal world in the same way that they used to be is like a premise, like that's the given from which we start his original mythology, right? And so, therefore, that and and again, if you want to, if you don't have time to reread the whole book of Lost Tales, or if you've jumped in with us later downstream uh, and don't have time to read it for the first time, uh, there's a shorter way to do this. Go to volume one of the History of Middle-earth and read uh, the... Uh, um, the uh, read Quartarian Among the Trees, the poem. It's a longish poem, but it's way shorter than the whole book. Uh, so read Quartarian Among the Trees, and it will give you a pretty good sense of the spirit of this, like the the spirit of of longing and sorrow and um, uh, yearning and uh, sadness about the fading of the elves, like that the elves are are that that the you know the the that they are the lost people now, right? How did they how did they get lost? Um, what happened? Um, again, that was the premise of the whole mythology, in a sense, at the beginning. So on the one hand, he is absolutely stuck with the word fading, right? Because that's an essential part of his mythology from the beginning. And it absolutely would shock me if he were to throw that word out the window. But here's my question. When I said I'm not, I know something's happening, but I don't know exactly what it is. So again, what's clearly happening is he's retconning this idea now, Right. He has worked out this new concept through this, you know, this new uh, sort of metaphysics of the of the Fea and the proa. He has now worked out a new uh, explanation, right, of the mechanics of how the fading works. But but so that's definitely happening. But here's what I don't know if it's happening or not. Is he recontextualizing it? Is he making it less sad? Is this less sad? Is that where we're going? Is he, in fact, kind of reversing himself? And that's one reason why he's using the word, putting the word fading in inversed commas here, right? The end of this process is their fading, as men have called it, right? Because to men it looks like they're fading, They're becoming invisible and forgotten to men, right? But in fact, it just means that the Fea and the Hroa are getting along better than ever before and are now an inseparable team, right? And now their Hroa is indeed deathless and may not be destroyed or changed. So one possible reading of this passage is Tolkien saying, no, I'm taking that note of sadness, from all of my early writings, and I'm transforming it retroactively into triumph. Right? That this is not the tragedy of the elves fading from our world. This is the triumph of the elves who are fulfilling their destiny. Right? Um, yeah, No. Marie says, I'm not sure it's less sad if you're the one who's faded and can only interact with other faded elves. <laughs> right, exactly. As Brian was suggesting, the opposite side you know, the other side of the coin uh of the your body is indeed deathless and may not be destroyed or changed is that also you can't really interact with the rest of the world anymore. Right? So uh um yeah, like on the one on the one hand nobody can Kill you with pointy objects anymore, but on the other hand, you can't, you know, enjoy a pint with a friend either. Uh, there it is, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. Now, I absolutely agree. Tony and a couple others are, and you know, Jennifer, many of you are very sensibly saying um, that the sorrow and the tragedy is mostly from the human standpoint right that it's it's not even in the older mythology it doesn't necessarily mean that um it's sad to the elves the what is called fading or like the the state of things which needs explaining by the mythology is sad to the elves that is true in theory um but I would say that's not true in practice that is to say it seems pretty clear to me from the book of lost tales that the lot of the elves is unhappy afterwards. Like that they're kind of sad too. Um because it's associated from the beginning with banishment, like more than one levels of banishment and uh and there's a um there's it's the word fading, which is a that's a negative word, right? It's a bad word. Like if you're fading, not nothing good is happening to you if you're fading, right? Diminishing, of course, is the other word that gets used. If you're fading and diminishing, that's not a good thing. Clearly not a good thing, right? Um, And I think to the elves in the Book of Lost Tales, at the end uh, of things, especially the elves who stayed in Middle-earth, it's um, um, clearly not a good thing, right? But I agree with Josiah, who points out that... um, even here in this paragraph. Um, uh, and I think this is very good reading, Josiah. Uh, he, right in, earlier on in the sentence, when he talks about the bodies being indeed deathless and not being able to be destroyed, um, he says, uh, for the body becomes at last, as it were, a mere memory held by the Theia. Um And Josiah's point is that mere memory still kind of sounds a little bit regretful, right? Um, like, that's not necessarily a totally happy situation. Um, uh, yeah, see, Tony, I don't agree. The, I don't think Galadriel is a counterexample to this. Um, Goadriel might feel that her choice... To reject the ring and to go on and to diminish is good, but it's only good by it's only better than being corrupted and becoming a dark queen, right? That would be bad, that would be bad, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that the diminishing is not sad, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um. Yeah. Anyway, okay, but we'll we'll get to we'll get to. I'm trying to avoid dragging in too much that isn't here in these passages here. Um, uh, now, Tomas, that's interesting. Tomas says any similarities between elvish fading and wraithification induced by rings is a mere coincidence. Well, I'm not sure. I'd call it a mere coincidence, but it's certainly not the same thing. Um, but I think that there are some uncoincidental similarities between the two. The difference is that one of those things is the playing out of the natural order. And the other of those two things is a fundamental violation of the natural order. Right. And therefore a warped Corruption of that or other version, but other than that, the processes actually do seem to me kind of similar. Actually, um, that you know, as I said before, Tony, I, I though I don't think he's forgotten the passage. I don't think that that passage about Gorfindel existing on both sides is necessarily behind this stuff. But, you know, Tomas, I am less sure uh, that the business about becoming invisible permanently, as Gandalf says, would happen to you if you went on uh, fading, right? I am um, not at all sure that he's not thinking about that passage here, especially since the word fading is being used in both, right? Um, so it seems to me more likely... um. It seems to me more likely that, um, uh, he has that parallel in mind here. Um, twisted, warped parallel, right? Yeah. In flavor, Tony, it is a little bit like the way in which the vampirism of Dracula in Bram Stoker's book is like a warped and twisted version of the resurrection through Christ. Yes. Yes. Um... That, uh, yes, that's kind of interesting. Actually, it's a really interesting parallel. Yeah, kind of like that. Kind of like that. Okay, let us continue our uh, extremely efficient. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. It was in Amon that they learned of Manway that each fea was imperishable within the life of Arda, and that its fate was to inhabit Arda to its end. Those Thaar, therefore, that in the marring of Arda suffered unnaturally a divorce from their Hroar, remained still in Arda and in time. But in this state, that is, after the has lost its Hroa, in this state they were open to the direct instruction and command of the vow val- of the valar. As soon as they were disbodied, they were summoned to leave the places of their life and death and go to the halls of waiting mandos in the realm of the valar if they had obeyed this summons different opportunities lay before them the length of time that they dwelt in waiting was partly the will of namo the judge lord of mandos partly at their own will the happiest fortune they deemed was after the waiting to be reborn for so the evil and grief that they had suffered in the curtailment of their natural course might be redressed Oh, what a sentence that last one is. Holy cow, can of worms. But anyway, let's go back to the first paragraph. Okay, so what about the spirits? So what about, so we've been talking, right, about this coherence between the body and the spirit um, and what happens to the body over time uh, and the tenacity of life and all this stuff. So but what happens when the separation does occur, right? Okay. What actually happens to the spirit of an elf after it, quote, dies, right? Okay. Notice, first of all, that this separation between Fea and Roa, occasioned by violence or whatever, right? Um is characterized as an unnatural divorce, an unnatural divorce. Remember, it is the purpose and destiny of the, of the, the Fea and the Hroa to be married continually, right? They're supposed to stick with that body. That's plan A, is to, that your Fea and your Hroa are what you get, right? Even though, remember, sometimes it doesn't always seem to work out, right? You don't choose your chroah, right? You don't choose your family. You don't choose your body, right? Your body is just given to you, but it might be, for all that it's an arranged marriage, it's a permanent marriage, or meant to be, envisioned as a permanent marriage. Um, uh, Between... Between their bodies and their spirits and therefore the destruction of their bodies or the in, or the near fatal wounding of their bodies uh, is um, I characterized as an unnatural divorce. Um, so what happens to the fair? It remains still in Arda and in time. See the very important emphasis here. What happens to their spirits after death? It doesn't leave the building, right? Wherever it is that elves, that men go, right, the spirits of men go after death, wherever that is and whatever's going on there, that is not where elves go, right? There is no afterlife for elves. It's their life continues here in Arda and in time, right? All that happens is a change of state, right? All that happens is a change of state. They were married happily or at least hopefully their Fea and Hrawa were kind of rubbing along together well enough, right? But now they've been split up the fae and the Hroa. So they've lost their Hroa, but they, the Fea, and that's why, again, I've been saying from the beginning, the fae seems to be by Tolkien's metaphysic here, the essential elf. Like, that's what the elf is. It is a spirit. It has a body. That seems to be true of Tolkien's elves. Um, they're not really incarnate peoples if they don't have both, right? But you know, if you, um, um, if you lose, if the two of them split up, they're not split. The elf is the Fea, right? And the body decomposes. Remember that the body ceases to be part of the team anymore, and that's why it decomposes and returns to the stuff of Arda, right? So here it seems fairly clear that the Fea is essentially the elf, and the Hroa is more Okay, well, I was going to say accidental in like the, the you know, uh, Thomist sense of that term, like in the Aristotelian sense. Uh, but that might not be helpful. Um, in any case, it is the fair, which is the elf. Okay. But in the state, so notice another thing not only does it remain still in Arta Indian time, not only does it not go somewhere else, does it not leave the world, right? There's no tunnel with a light at the end for elves when they die. There's not even a local transportation, right? It's not even like they just wake up back in the resurrection circle, right, where they last saved their game. That's not, like, what happens with the elves... Their spirits are summonable at that time. They don't automatically go to Mandos. When an elf dies, it doesn't wake up in Mandos. That's not how it works. In this state, they were open to the direct instruction and command of the Valar. So when they are pure fea, right? When they are now independent of their roa, of their bodies, the Valar can communicate with them more directly open to the direct instruction and command of the Valar. As soon as they were disbodied, they were summoned to leave the places of their life and death and go to the halls of waiting. Summoned to leave the places of their life and death. So, when an elf dies, where is the fae? Right there. Right there. Looking. Presumably at its roa. Right? Um, And equally, apparently, from the context of this paragraph, hanging out, right? Hanging out in the same place. Um, and from that place, the places of their life and death, they're called to the halls of Mandos. Not compelled not transported, summoned to that place. If they obeyed this summons, if they obeyed this summons, they don't have to obey the summons. They can stay. Right? You can't force them. You call them. In other words... Remember that business about the summoning of the Eld of the Valar, right? And anybody who says that the Valar summoning of them was a bad idea lies with a tongue of Melkor. Remember that, right? So the summoning of the Eldar to Valinor is, um, merely a foreshadowing of this other summoning? Or this is an echo of that or whatever, right? Um if you indulge me for just a minute, and I know I've only got about a minute, uh, but if you'll indulge me for a part of that minute uh, in making reference to the Silmarillion film project, Marie, I bet you're thinking the same thing too. Um, when in the film, film project, which I won't go into too many details, I promise you, um, but in our, film film, our creative film, film project, when we were discussing our season two, which went from the awakening of the elves at Quivian and through the darkening of Valinor, so it was about the elves being called to Valinor, Um, the dominant theme of that season as we were planning it was the question, where is Elven home, right? Where do elves belong? Do elves belong in Middle-earth? Is this where they put here for a reason? Is this their job? And going into the West, is that a kind of abdication of the role that they were given originally by Iluvatar? Is that how things are? Or is the West where they really belong? Um, Is that their true home? and to stay in Middle-earth is lingering, right, is uh, is itself, that that's the true evasion, right, uh, the true separation, the true failure to fulfill their destiny, right, which is the case. So that question, which seems, by the way, to me an open question, I can see arguments on both sides of that question from within Tolkien's corpus and kind of going back and forth in some ways at various points in Tolkien's corpus over time. Um, but that was the question, which I thought was a really interesting question, that we were kind of allowing uh, our uh, theoretical retelling and adaptation of the stories to be kind of um, uh, uh, kind of wrestling with um, uh, in that season. Um, here, Tolkien seems to be answering that question fairly clearly. If I'm reading it correctly. Um, Between that earlier reference of like, there is a 0% chance that the Valar were wrong, right, to invite them. And now the way that the summons is being characterized, right, um, makes it seem much clearer that at this point in the late 50s, right, Tolkien is thinking, yes, they belong in the West. They belong in the West. Um, One way and another. They belong in the West, I think. Um, and that's interesting. But if they obey the summons, the length of time that they dwelt in waiting was partly the will of Namo the Judge, partly at their own will. So, they are not allowed out. They have to remain in waiting in the halls of Mandos. For If they obey the summons, they are subject to the sentence of Namo the judge right they're compelled to remain in waiting compelled after they voluntarily answer the summons Um, but also partly at their own will too Um, they could opt to remain even after their required period of waiting if they want to and apparently some of them do But they deem that the happiest fortune, the best option, though. Every elf's plan A. Okay, plan A is not to get killed in the first place. But plan B, if you are killed, right, is to answer the summons, go to the waiting in the halls of Mandos, do your time, right? Profit from that time, and then get reborn so that the evil and grief that they had suffered in the curtailment of their natural course might be redressed. Don't ask me what that means, because I don't know what, in what sense it's going to be redressed. That's the word which seems to me um, fraughted with meaning. Uh, yeah. Yeah, seriously frauded. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, but for now, for now, um, no, hang on. A couple of you are thinking about Gorfindel. This isn't what happened to Gorfindel. Gorfindel is later. Gore-Findle, don't think about Gorfindel, um, because this isn't about Gorfindel. We're talking we're not talking about coming back into Middle Earth, getting it like wumping up a new Hroa and sailing back to Middle Earth. We're talking about being reborn. Reborn. Baby a second time. Incarnated again as a an embryo or whatever. A zygote, probably. Right. Um. Nancy says, "I thought he gave up on that." Yeah, me too. Well, we're out of time. <laughs> Here's what I was laughing about, and several of you will, I know, appreciate this. Um, I was gonna try to get through the whole of the laws and customs among the Eldar last time, and I got about halfway. <laughs> Tonight, I was trying to do the other half of Laws and Customs of the Eldar, and I've gotten halfway through tonight's slides. This means we are on pace to finish Laws and Customs of the Eldar never <laughs> right we are on pace to, to uh we're going to we're going to keep doing half of the slides every week and we will never reach the end of laws and customs among the eldar in like theoretically it will never happen exactly zeno strikes back is exactly what we're looking at that's why that's what i was laughing about just a few minutes ago when i looked down at how many slides we had left was realizing that uh i am uh, I'm making I'm making a reality of Zeno's paradox here, which is hysterical. Um, but anyway, um, so next time, but but ne- so next time, I totally promise. I was really confident we were going to get to the necromancer this time, and we totally didn't get to the necromancer. But next time, we have two really juicy issues to talk about, and that is rebirth thing. Because Nancy, you're right. Like, holy cow. Here, we'd finally gotten to the point where he gave up on the Valar having kids, right? Which was, like, one of the very last of the old Book of Lost Tales concepts that was, like, being phased out, right? That we sort of... I mean, there are a bunch of things, like, being familiar with the, the published Silmarillion and stuff. You read the early materials, and you're like, Whoa, that's different. Like, that's going away sooner or later, right? Um, and... um uh, and, you know, including like the the fact of the Valar having kids and stuff. Uh, you know, and we've and to this point now we've got you know that 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 example right of the Valar having kids looked like it was one of the last of the old ideas to 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 fall off finally right, and now, boom, we're back, we're back having elf babies again right. We're we're straight back to congratulations it's it's a boy in fact it's grandpa right I, there we are there we are back to that again how does that work why does that work why is tolkien going back to this um um uh, we will see we will see um uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer says, and Odo shows up behind Gandalf on the horse. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, next time, the reincarnation of elves and necromancy. how A how-to guide uh, in next week's discussion. And this time, I'm just going to say it. Let's think about the... let pos- entertain the possibility that we might escape the... the uh, this snare of Zeno's paradox and get through the end of the laws and custom among the Eldar and continue. Uh, and after that, let's go back and talk more about, um, uh, about, uh, the, the, the divorce of Finway and Muriel. Uh, cause I, I don't know about you, but I really am keen to talk more about the divorce of Finway and, <laughs> and Muriel. Um, uh <laughs> yes, Arthur's remembering the old song, "I'm my own grandpa, yeah, exactly, literally true for elves right um absolutely so anyway okay so so if 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 you're feeling as optimistic as I am, do go ahead and read a little bit more uh about about Finway and Muriel, and we'll see how far we get uh we get we get uh next time so All right. Thank you very much, everybody. Good night. I will see you guys next week. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org.